Hi, Pastor Mike Fabares here. In August 2024, you're invited to join me on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. Delve into God's Word while taking in the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Envy wants to cause all kinds of damage and corrosive effects in your Christian life. You could beat that. You see the the desire growing. You see this interest of wanting stuff that they have. You see this growing craving about the advantages that they have. And now I'm starting to resent. Before you start resenting, say, I I have to love this person. Welcome to Focal Point. Today, Pastor Mike Fabares explains why the greatest weapon in the fight against envy is love. Now, that may sound cliche, but you can't truly love someone if you envy them, right? And Pastor Mike is going to show us how to deploy genuine Christian love for others to fend off our envious cravings. I'm Dave Drury. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20 to look at the 10th commandment as we jump back into a message titled, God's Gracious Solutions. And now here's Pastor Mike. Take a look at this passage and remind yourself of the 10th commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 is where we see the 10th commandment. You shall not, here's the word, here's the key ingredient to envy. You can't envy unless you do this, right? Covet. You shall not covet. Now, if there was a period there, we would have all kinds of contradictions in our minds. There's not a period there, right? The sentence continues. It's not that you have a strong desire, which is really what the word covet means. The problem here is that strong craving that we have could be directed in a direction that is sin. And this is one of the big sins. This is the 10th big sin that God is saying, you guys can't do this. Here's the 10 commandments. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. If you took the word neighbor out of there, I suppose, if you had a strong desire to... uh, Live in the house that God gave you. Nothing wrong with that. I know nothing's wrong with the second one. You shall not covet your wife. If the word neighbor wasn't there, there'd be nothing wrong with that at all. That's the whole point, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if it's your neighbor's wife, no. You've got to take that strong craving. You've You've got to deal with that. You can't have that. You can't desire their employees to modernize this, his male servants or his female servants, or the tools or implements of his business, his ox or his donkey, or here it comes, as broadly as you can put it, anything else that is your neighbor's. See, there's the problem. Strong desire is not the problem, but if you're conscious of your strong desires, then that's the start. Matter of fact, if you want to implement the Lord's solution to the problem of envy, It's not the total solution. That's why it's a three-point sermon this morning. The first solution is just being aware of your deep cravings, your desires. Number one on your outline, if you're taking notes, just based on the first text that I've drawn you to, the 10th commandment in Exodus 20, 17, you need to diligently, here it comes, here's the verb, police your cravings. Police them. You need to walk by and make sure everything's copacetic and not causing any trouble, right? Because you're going to see the suspects in your life, and you are going to have to be in charge of your desires, and you're going to have to say, this is a proper desire, this is not a proper desire. You need to start to police, you need to start to discern, you need to start to separate into two categories your desires, your strong desires. 
So whatever it is that's on your craving list, I'm just saying if you come to church, you ought to expect this. We've got to put God at the top of that list. And we know God through Christ. There's only one way to have my eyes open to the living God, and that is to put my trust in Christ to forgive my sins, which is the barrier between me and God. That's why my eyes are closed to God. That's why I'm blind before God. I need to open my eyes, and that can only happen through me embracing Christ, not embracing Muhammad, not embracing you know, uh, Buddha. It's me putting my trust in the finished work of Christ. And now I can see the one that I was made to crave and love. And it's a good thing when you start to find it, and some of you are on that path. Some of you, though, have been on the path, but you've left your first love, to quote Revelation chapter 2. The church of Ephesus said, you guys are still doing the right stuff. you got a lot of spin, you know, spinning plates. You, you, you are doing the right thing. You have the right doctrine, but your, your cravings are wrong. You don't have the primary love in place. So much to this, and you could see we could preach a series, I suppose, on this. But as I take you in the small group questions, the Psalm 42, I want you to have that analogy of the picture of someone craving food, or in this case, the deer running through the forest that pants for the water from the streams, right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you, oh God. That picture of saying, I just need to get to that place. When I'm famished and I want a meal, Right? I, I need to start to learn in my life to prioritize the things that would cultivate the desire for me to know and understand the living God. We've got to keep ourselves from idols, even things that are in the acceptable stewardship list can become a displacing desire for my desire to know and understand God. But then there's all kinds of things as you look across the street at your neighbor's stuff your neighbor's relationships, your neighbor's blessings, your neighbor's, neighbor's privilege, your neighbor's whatever it might be, and you got to say, wait a minute, that's so far off the path. Right? I just can't let those cravings dominate my thinking, my priorities, or my life. Well, how do I prevent that? I'm glad you asked that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, it being printed on your napkins at your wedding reception notwithstanding this passage is not about romantic love although it might apply this is about our relationships in this case within the church and the kinds of division and the kinds of backbiting and the kinds of rivalry and the kinds of criticism and bitterness that existed in that church was all because of of envy and what they needed was the counterbalance that they needed the solution to that and the solution is found in this four-letter word l-o-v-e in english love Here's how love is described. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Okay, so the positive statements, okay, there's an expression of what love looks like. That's how it works. It's patient and it's kind. What's the first negation here? Well, love does not envy. It doesn't envy. That's at the top of the list. Certainly it was a problem in Corinth, so maybe that's why it was raised, humanly speaking, to the top of the list. But I think just objectively, it should be at the top of the list because envy and love are antithetical to each other. You do not love the person you envy. I assure you of that. You certainly don't love them in a Christian love. You don't have biblical love for them because it's never going to be a, a rival. It's never going to boast. It's never going to try to compare with the person I love. Not going to envy. Not going to be to have this covetousness desire for what they have. It's not going to try to measure up in the boasting. It's not going to be arrogant, and it's certainly not going to be rude, verse 5. Why? Because it's not that way. It's not, it's not selfish. 
It's just the opposite. It does not insist on its own way. By the way, you want to see the fruits of, of, of envy? Look at the next words here. It is not irritable or resentful. I mean, if I really to try to describe envy as I have in the series in a simple definition, that is the word I used in the definition, right? It's the resentment that grows up in your heart because of other people's blessings, advantages, or positions. If they have something I don't have, here's how I know envy exists. I'm resentful of it. And it's going to fuel a lot of things that are going to be negative and secondary sins. This is a primary sin. Criticism, gossip, backbiting, slander, competitiveness, a kind of worldly ambition can even result to speak of Cain and murder. It can result in conspiracy to commit murder. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin in the first century, it's bad. But it starts with irritation and resent. That's what envy does. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing doesn't rejoice when something wrong happens to someone that I love. I certainly would never want that. It rejoices in what's true and good and whole, and I'm like, that's what I want. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So you know that passage. You've read it a hundred times. been in church. You've read it a thousand times. That passage right there reminds me that the word that is used to describe how God treats us in Christ that is the solution. You need to love in a Christian way, in a godly way, in a Christ-like way. And if you were consciously to deploy Christian love, genuine Christian love to someone that I am tempted to envy, you would neutralize that problem. You're going to beat envy to the punch. Envy wants to cause all kinds of damage and corrosive effects in your Christian life. You could beat that. You see the the desire growing, you see this interest of wanting stuff that they have, you see this growing craving about the advantages that they have, and now I'm starting to resent. Before you start resenting, say, I have to love this person. Number two, you need to deploy genuine Christian love. Let's talk about how to do that. We need to deploy genuine Christian love. I guess maybe just another word to convince you. Here's how I know that even non-Christians sitting in this auditorium today can agree with me about what I'm saying is because even in the common grace of God, shedding love in the hearts of parents because he is a good God who gives common grace for the propagation of the human race. He gives them a taste of this kind of selfless love when they have children. You shuffle down the hallway at two in the morning because Junior's crying or has soiled diapers, is hungry, is teething. You go in and Actually, it's kind of interesting to watch these young couples. You even watch sometimes couples come together. You think, oh, they're immature. And, you know, yeah, they're on an emotional, romantic high. But they have kids. There's like, there's no romance here. (laughs) You're just like all of a sudden forced into a selfless kind of love. And it works because somehow God, right, somehow instills this grace of loving a child. And here comes a, a blob of human humanity out in the nursery. And it's like, it doesn't matter what they look like, they're fat, their head is oblong. Those parents love that child for no apparent reason, really, objectively, other than God's involved. And in that work, right, can't blame on an evolution, you can, and that's what they do. But this is a God thing. This is the common grace of God. And that act of selfless love, it displaces necessarily, it is antithetical to, to envy. As that child starts to grow up, You don't sit there and envy that child. Think about it. The resentment that the child has something. Like the child becomes, uh, let's just say, you know, they send off school, the the student of the month. You know, I'm never the student of the month. Uh, I I can't believe it. 
Use these, hey, did you hear what Junior? I was like, yeah. I, I mean, they don't really know him, obviously, or they would never make my child the, the student of the month. Kid hits a home run. Ah, yeah, well, you know what? I didn't hit. I didn't get hit any home runs when I was in little league. Can't believe it. Yeah, look at all these people cheering. I'm gonna. I guess I better stand up and cheer. Good job. Look at him. Look how happy he is. Ah, everybody's giving him high fives. I so arrogant, kid. <laughs> you don't have to tell a parent to spring up and scream. Dignified parents screaming their heads off because Junior hit a home run. Why? Because they love their child. They are not envious of the advantages they have. As a matter of fact, here's something that most parents want intuitively. I want, my, I want my kid to do better than I do. I mean, don't you, long term? I'd like them to do better. I'd like them to do better in life. I'd like them to do better in relationships. I'd like them to be smarter. I'd like them to be more talented. That's what you intuitively want for your children. What is that? It's the opposite of envy. That is not a resentment for their advance. Now, can some depraved tentacles of the enemy get involved in this? Sure. Don't start thinking of exceptions. Of course, the exceptions only prove the rule because the rule is you're working hard to find the exception to this. Or maybe you got some dysfunctional memory of something where you had envy and your parents envied you. Okay, stop. The principle is when a family is functioning as it ought to, parents want what's best for their kids, which, by the way, is a good definition of, of biblical love. You want what's best for them. You want what's best for them. I mean, I, I've often and frequently through the years, when I come back to biblical love, trying to find it this way. It is a commitment to the other's well-being, right? It's a commitment to the other's well-being. I think it summarizes well, a little more technical than I want what's good for them, but I really do want them to thrive. I want them to have what they need, and I want them to, to thrive and grow and be good, and I would like them to thrive more than I thrived. I'd like them to do better than I've done. We want that. That's the opposite of envy. We don't do that. We don't willingly shuffle down the hallway to change some guy's diapers in our small group. That's a terrible example and illustration. But it's like when they share their second like, praise report in the small group that they got another raise, right? Or, or they got some new, you know, their second house in the mountains closed or whatever. You, you don't sit there and act the same way you act when your child gets another trophy or another ribbon or has another accomplishment, or scores well on a test. What's the difference? Here's the difference, love. That's the difference. And I'm saying if you could learn to love people, then you wouldn't have this problem. And you don't love people that you envy. You resent them because you're jealous of what they have. And that's just gotta stop. Well, I'm giving you the solution. Here it is, employ and deploy in your heart love. I need to learn to love this person. So that's a change in prayer request because really, it's not just, I'm craving things they have and I'm resenting them for having them. I don't like that they have it better than I have. You need to start saying, God, I'm not just saying, please stop those feelings. I'm now praying, God, help me to love them, to love them like you did. And how is that? Philippians 2, I'm glad you asked. Let's go there. Philippians chapter 2, look at this passage with me. Here is love demonstrated in Christ. And again, this may be a familiar passage. We need these familiar passages strung together in our minds. Your eyeballs need to be on these texts to help you ingest this truth because this truth will solve the problem and you will thank me one day, maybe, that you've actually started to get envy, which maybe you didn't even identify, but now it's getting under control and a hundred lesser evils in your life are being stopped because we've got these truths strung together in our mind. We have a strategy. I want to entrench a pattern of thinking when you start to feel cravings that you know are transgressive cravings, and they're about my growing resentment because someone has something I don't have, a blessing, an advantage, a privilege that I don't have. 
Instead of organizing some kind of protest, I want you to learn to love them. What does it look like? Philippians chapter 2, which, by the way, reminds us of what community looks like. Verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, right? In other words, you in Christ, we're all in this thing. We all are living by Christ's dictates. We're all doing this. Well, there would be comfort in that kind of love. It'd be amazing. It'd be like a warm blanket. That'd be fantastic. Any participation in the spirit, right? There's the word fellowship. We all have commonality. It's fine. You need something of mine. Great. I'm not keeping score. Any affection and sympathy? Oh, man, talk about me being excited for you and being sympathetic when something hurts for you. Man, well, Paul says, make my joy complete. Actually, get on the same page as Christ. Have the same mind. Have the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind, all of you just keep moving toward the goal. And the goal is going to look like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Not about you. Not about you advancing. Not about you Getting onto the next level, not about your raise, not about your summer home, not about any of that. Not about you bragging about your accomplishments. Instead, humility. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. By the way, can you understand reading this passage, even just with a little emphasis, shows us that we're completely out of step with our culture. They're never going to buy this. Which maybe I should step out of the series and the sermon right now and say, one thing you need, and I could prove this from 1 John if we had more time, but let me at least state it as emphatically as I can. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 make it clear that you cannot love, not biblically love, you cannot love, not really, not consistently, not, not genuinely, not with pure motives. You can have a touch of God's common grace in your life, but you cannot really live in love unless you know God, because God is love. And that's the point. Real biblical love, and I'm trying to explain it from this text, you can't really love unless you're regenerate. You need a heart that loves. Love is of God. And everyone who loves has been born of God. And that's a big statement. Everyone who loves, who really loves, who has the kind of love I'm trying to explain, that person has been born of God and knows God. The one that lo doesn't love, doesn't know God. And that's the point. Can a parent love his child selflessly? Yes, for a while. But they're not going to love their, their peers that way. They're not going to love their boss that way. They're not going to love their employees that way. They're not going to love their neighbors that way. They're not going to love their brother-in-law that way, but you can if you have Christ. Is any encouragement in Christ? Comfort from love? Any participation in the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy? Complete my joy, Paul says. Have the same mind, same accord, full of just one mind, same love, all of it. Be in this mindset. No selfish ambition, no conceit, and humility count others as more significant than yourselves. I would like you to have those things because I love you. I'd like you to have blessing because I love you. I'd like you to have advantages because I love you. I'd like you to be healthier than me because I love you. I'd like you to be more beautiful, more handsome than me because I love you. I'd like you to have the advantages I never had. I can think that way about my children. I need to think that way about the people in my life, everywhere. Even non-Christians, by the way, because envy right, often can be produced because I'm interacting with non-Christians. You can envy non-Christians. Matter of fact, that's a big problem in scripture. If we had more time, we could explore that. How often we will envy non-Christians. We envy non-Christians, not just the celebrities on the, on the blogs, on the, on the websites. I'm talking about we can envy non-Christians for a variety of means. Therefore, I better love non-Christians. If I don't love non-Christians, right, I'm going to envy them. Be vulnerable to that. As Paul said, and I know I'm going to get through reading this, I promise, but Here's another famous verse. Actually, it's stuck between such famous verses, it's eclipsed by the surrounding verses. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
There's a little statement, and almost as you're reading it and you're getting all these great truths, you almost lose it in the midst of quoting the passage. But it says, we no longer consider anyone according to the flesh, even though we once considered Christ according to the flesh, but we regard him thus no longer. Right? What? What? That verse is stuck between verses about ambassadorship and all things new in Christ. And, you know, it's just a great text, right? We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for him and rose again. That passage is stock full of fantastic verses. And in the middle of it all, we, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. What are you talking about? Paul would make a point throughout 1 Corinthians that he was not going to care about people's externals, who they were, didn't show any favoritism. He saw everyone as someone in need of Christ. He saw everyone as someone made in the image of God. And so the playing field was leveled, even though at one point they looked at Christ and they really evaluated who he was based on the external stuff, what he owned, what he looked like, how articulate he was. And so they were making decisions based on standards of the flesh. If I no longer, no longer in any way regard anyone according to fleshly standards, which is what that verse is saying, then it doesn't matter, rich or poor, beautiful, ugly, thin or fat, doesn't matter if they are articulate or they can barely speak. It doesn't matter what they're running or what kind of job they don't have. It doesn't matter. I view everyone just as people made in the image of God and in need of Christ. I look at non-Christians that way. I look at celebrities that way. I look at sports figures that way. I look at the guy on the street that way. That's the way I ought to be looking at people. That's the goal. I don't regard anybody according to the flesh anymore. Regard them as people that need Christ. I regard everyone as people that need to hear Christ. And the point is, I'll do all things for all men. I'll do by all means, do everything I possibly can that they might be one to Christ. That's what I want. I become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. This is the message to the Corinthians. And it's stuck there as a verse that reminds me that's what love is, even to non-Christians. Do I prioritize my love for Christians? Of course I do, right? Galatians chapter six, I, I, I do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. As Peter said, first Peter two, I love the brothers, but it starts with honor all men, fear the king. So I wanna honor everyone. I want to love everyone. It's a different kind of love, obviously, in the concentric circles of my commitments, my covenants and my life. But I can even stop envying and coveting the lives and possessions and privileges of non-Christians because I've learned to love them. That's the goal. You're listening to Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares and a message called God's Gracious Solutions. Now, if you missed any of the previous messages in this series, you can easily go back and listen online at focalpointradio.org. And while you're online, take a moment to help keep this program going strong in your community by making a donation. You see, we rely on the generosity of listeners like you who share our desire to reach the world with the life-changing truth of God's Word. And in keeping with this mission, when you give to Focal Point, we'll send you a copy of Pastor Mike's brand new book titled Envy, A Big Problem You Didn't Know You Had. In his new book, Pastor Mike exposes the pervasive sin of envy, a sin that is hiding in many of our lives, and explores biblical ways to close the gaps that make us vulnerable to envy's temptations. As you read, you'll discover how you can truly rejoice with those who rejoice and gain a deeper capacity for selfless biblical love. So please give generously today with a one-time financial gift or become a Focal Point Partner by making your donation a monthly gift when you get in touch to request Pastor Mike's latest book. To give, please call 888-320-5885. That's 
320-5885 or go online to focalpointradio.org. And if you're not quite ready to give just yet, we'd still like to hear from you. This month, we have a free gift for our listeners who contact Focal Point. It's a complete CD copy of Pastor Mike's sermon called Envy, A Private But Disruptive Sin. To get your free gift, contact us at focalpointradio.org. Well, you've probably noticed that communion is observed in various ways by Christians all around the world. But what exactly is the Lord's Supper, according to Scripture? I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us tomorrow when Pastor Mike explains the significance of communion and compares church traditions. Join us for this enlightening edition of Ask Pastor Mike, Friday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, we live in a culture where every point of view demands affirmation. It'd be easy to tell people what they want to hear, but we must teach the Bible accurately, unapologetically, and without compromising and without editing it. God's word is truth. If you want to send me a question, I encourage you to get in touch with us at focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.